Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Thank you for tuning in. This is the 100th episode of the Development Debrief. Today, I'm going to share some reflections and some statistics. Then I'm going to share a short conversation that I had with my dad. And then I'm going to end with some ideas and thoughts about looking forward and what I see for the future of this podcast and this community. I want to start with sharing a story that I haven't yet shared. Actually, I don't think with anyone. And I'm going to add a little drama here. I'd like for you to close your eyes and imagine a pre-pandemic dark auditorium filled with hundreds of successful women. The only thing you can make out is a blue background and two small figures in the distance on a stage. The figures that you are trying to see are a great American journalist and the second female Supreme Court Justice. It was February of 2018 and I was working at Columbia at the time. I felt so lucky to be in the presence of these women at what was the very first She Opened the Door conference. And I knew this interview was going to be special. What I didn't know, though, was that Poppy Harlow came to interview Ruth Bader Ginsburg just five days after she gave birth to her son. I was in awe of the two of them on stage. And that was one of the many moments that my idea for the development debrief started to grow. I remember sitting in that auditorium thinking, I wonder if there's a way for me to help people and to feel a kernel of the inspiration that I feel today, but I wasn't sure what that would look like or how that would come about. I've looked up to Poppy Harlow ever since I started working at Columbia, and she had just started her podcast, The Boss Files, and I was just very drawn to that. I thought it was so cool. And I think one of the really special parts of our work is that we are within and around successful people who are doing important and impactful things in the world. And inspiration, aspiration, and mentorship really is critical for all of us to succeed. It's that connection point that really drives me and I hope drives you too. So over the past 100 episodes, we've had over 60,000 downloads. Our listeners are 90% within the U.S. The most popular states are, not shockingly, New York, California, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Massachusetts. However, people are listening to the debrief in all 50 states and over 60 countries. This blows my mind, and I love it. If you're listening internationally, thank you so much. Please continue to spread the word. I chose to bring my dad on for this milestone episode. You've seen there are roughly 50 hours of content. You maybe have listened to a lot of them. Maybe this is your first episode. But what you don't see is how many hours I have spent talking with my dad about our work. He has really good ideas. And a lot of this, the lion's share of it, really did happen during the pandemic. I recognize how lucky I am to have him as a resource And I really want to encourage listeners to seek out mentors and people that inspire them. That's where I want to go back to the Poppy Harlow instance. 
it's extreme, but I know we've all been sitting in a in an auditorium or a classroom and thought, wow, it would be so cool to connect with that person or get a little bit of their sparkle or their stardust. And so I want to encourage people to make that outreach where they can in their lives and take that as a, as a takeaway for this 100th episode. I think it, it can't be stressed enough. So in my conversation with my dad, who is the Vice President of Development and Alumni Affairs at Cornell University, we talk about what we want to amplify, what we want to sunset, and what we want to create in our work as we continue to learn from the pandemic. And we are hoping to continue to have some of these conversations into the next coming months. It seems like there's a lot we can learn from the work being done at Cornell as they've had two banner years during a really difficult time. So let's hear what he has to say. You know, I was going back and forth on what to do for 100, how to celebrate 100, because it's such a happy thing. And you brought up the pandemic and I was like, I don't want to talk about the pandemic anymore. Why are we talking about the pandemic? And, and what did you say to me when I said that? The pandemic is not over and its reverberations will continue for a very long time. And you're right. I don't better. Don't get me wrong. It's better. We're on the upswing, but it's still a huge factor. What I, a lot of us can agree on is that we are still learning from it. And we're still rethinking our work and changing our work. Would you say the same is true? Oh, totally. I know, I know the same is true for you. Totally. Yeah, we're still very much experimenting and trying to figure out the best way forward. I mean, we have a lot of ideas, but we still don't know really what the right balance is. I'm a baby boomer. I grew up in my work and you too in a set of institutions that would be described as best practice institutions. And and I work for one, but we're still not sure exactly what the best practices are at this point. It's interesting that you bring up the generational thing because in this conversation and in other conversations that we've had together and hopefully we will continue to have, you bring the boomer perspective and the leadership perspective I just want to say I'm a very young, I'm a, I'm at the very young end of baby boomer. I just want to make that distinction. Okay? Are you sure? I am sure. I'm in the, 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 the tail end, but I'm still a baby <laughs> And I bring the mid, early to mid-career millennial perspective, and yet we do agree a good amount of time, which is kind of interesting. Um, I think sometimes my perspective is maybe a little bit old-fashioned compared to my peers, but so I just wanted to clarify that for people who maybe haven't heard us talking together, who maybe aren't as, if you're tuning in for the first time, it's important to know where we're coming from and in what context. So let's talk about a little bit of an overview of what your team has done and learned over the last year and a half and like what's changed. I was asked to give a talk on Wednesday to the SUNY advancement professionals and they're meeting in Ithaca, beautiful Ithaca, plug for Ithaca. And <laughs> we was, always plug Ithaca. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how I wanted to talk because it's a really disparate group and I really respect them from our local Tompkins Cortland Community College to SUNY Stony Brook. And, and Cornell is New York's land grant university. So we're very proudly part of that constellation. And so I thought, what would be something I could say that would be 
appropriate and scalable. What I think is our alumni affairs and development teams have done some of the most innovative work of their careers during the pandemic. And we have delivered two successive historic best fundraising and engagement results in the current. That's amazing. And it is amazing. And, and you know, the, the years of the pandemic have caused me as a leader and my leadership team to really We've pivoted, we've persisted, and we struggled over a lot of long-held assumptions about our field and our workplace. So I tried to organize this in sort of three three uh, assessments around how our work has changed. First, what do we want to amplify, i.e. the change is worth growing? And then what we want to sunset, old practices we should discontinue, which is not always so easy. And then what we still need to create, i.e. new ideas we need to develop to further advance our evolution. And then I applied them across seven categories of work. I'm still working on this, but one is giving around both large gifts and participation giving, uh, making the case, alumni engagement, internal culture and communication, recruiting and retaining talent and leading. I'm not gonna to talk to you about all of those, but just trying to really reflect on this. And I think it's really valuable to reflect on what we learned and and trying to actually study it, look at the data. That's the frame that I that I have in mind. Well, in the spirit of a hundred episodes, I'm really glad that you were thinking in a way that can be relatable on all cylinders, because one of the things that I really tried to do with the development debrief is to have people who are in a one person shop up to multiple hundred person shop be able to apply the things that we're talking about and the things that we're learning from our guests. So this feels right on brand. Thank you very much. I actually want to invite people who are listening to think about putting some of their current challenges into those buckets and how it might help them think those things through. So you talked about some of the work that your team has done, the fact that you've really had some remarkable uh, results. What do you think was amplified, sunsetted, and created to make that happen before we go into the categories like what do you think if you could pick a few things what do you think really helped you have those successes the enormous creation of wealth the fact that i think people have been more retrospective about their values and the issues of the world and how can they be of help and realizing that cornell is a really trusted partner where you can impact all kinds of things from research on disease to clean water to racial inequality, you name it, you can do it at Cornell. Um, I also think Cornell, we have this long tradition of, of engagement and, and a high culture community. I, I sent you last night the a video of uh, reunions outside singing, yes, singing the yes. Cornell songs. That's sort of the epitome of, of the Cornell experience, all the red and all the singing. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And then I would just say we have a tremendously talented staff. I'm very lucky to have the people I work with. Super smart, super creative um, and effective. I, I've asked you this before as we've talked about some of the successes over the last couple of years, is everyone just working harder? Is everyone just working smarter or is it not that simple? I had an interesting conversation with a, a, an alumnus yesterday who's very senior at one of the largest media outlets in the country. And he said, he thinks that things will be different, that people will travel more, but they'll be more selective about what they go to. It's gotta be really high quality and high impact. 
and that people's attention span on Zoom will be much shorter so that you can't, people only give you like half an hour. And so I think we're back in a place where people's real time schedules are crazy again. And so yes, we, can't, that. we can't count on people to behave in the same way. That's the thing that's super interesting. But to your question, yes, the staff has worked tremendously hard and during a hard time. Motivate but, that, though. You know, I think it's self-motivated. I think people, we have a team, they just love Cornell and they work hard and, and they're motivated by the volunteers. They're motivated by the donors. They're motivated by the mission. How did you come up with the buckets? Oh, I just plotted them out. I'm, I'm getting to the end of developing the presentation. I'm not sure the last two or three quite work. They overlap a lot, but I was just trying to figure out uh, chunking it out. The first two around fundraising were obviously very easy. And I might just talk about those. So the first category is large gift fundraising. And, and of course, you can scale this up and down depending on what your what your world is. I mean, at Cornell, it's it's literally six to nine figures, but you can do this in any setting. So the things that we want to amplify, there are three. One is is just again, there is nothing that creative around these, but it helps to try to distill them. The, one is the use of Zoom, telephone, and email. They are here to stay as essential tools. For us soliciting, connecting our campus experts with donors and negotiating and closing on a, on a really fast pace. Only, and we have, we've done some research on this, I just got it, only a quarter of our gift conversations so far this year were in person. Travel. Wait, hold on. A quarter of your gift conversations were in person. That's all. And that's, that's, that's a shocking big, to me. That's a big increase over last year. Well, last year doesn't shock me, but wow, Hopefully I feel like... Know we've been way more in person this year so that's really interesting yeah. well travel remains anemic the team again is in the field only about 25 percent of, of fiscal year 19 levels and we are closing gifts more quickly over half of our donors are open to doing more in-person meetings but we're really forever changed as we try to find what's the new sweet spot for when and where the highest value is achieved through meeting in person and how do you know they're open to that? Did you do surveys? Yeah, yeah, we ask. We ask. And, and and also on the plus plus side, unintentionally, these practices are making our work more cost effective and green, more sustainability. I mean, on this survey we did, I mean, people commented on, you know, how can we travel as much as we used to, given our concern about the environment? So it's it's sort of fascinating. How is that changing the way that you're assessing work you can't all, really do the it's all about the results it's all about we look at inputs you know it used to be well we'll add we'll add a call or an email if it's highly substantive well we don't you know it doesn't matter yeah. now they're all sort of created equal and, and and actually we're in a better place in terms of our time spent with donors we're increasing the amount the number of donors we're, we're working with so i think on all accounts we're doing more it's just different and you said it's cost effective which is a great feeling have your budgets shrunk or are you putting the money into other things? Well, we had to, during COVID early days, we had to cut our budget 5%. And, and one of the ways to do that was just a no brainer, which was to cut events and travel. And we're still way below what our budget is. You know, we're a very cost-effective organization. I, what kind of investment can you get where you, you uh, get $6.40 for every dollar you invest? Wow. So you have so you have extra funding. We can't spend the budget we have because we aren't traveling, we aren't having that many events, and we have a lot of openings. Are you finding ways to thank the employees that you have with that reality? 
Friday afternoons off during the summer. We're trying to do Friday afternoons without meetings. We were able to give, made the choice to give everyone in the organization the same raise percentage because it's a team effort and it just didn't make sense to, to not do that this year. So those are some of the ways, but you know, we work in an environment that has very little flexibility around how we reward people. And equity is an important issue. And so, you know, you value people. Uh, some people can be more productive than others, but you really, you can't have a distorted, in my mind, you can't have a distorted set of salaries in, in most cases. There's there gotta be a level of equity. And, you know, we just can't throw huge bonuses or huge raises at people. That's not, that's not the way our cultures are built. And you said you have a lot of openings. Does that feel different than it has in the past? Are you approaching that differently? Yes, it is more than we've ever had. A lot of it is because we're promoting internally. So every time we promote internally, we have another opening competition. It's because of the virtual offerings that people have. And we're not, what we're offering is not, maybe not as virtual forward. It's getting there, but maybe not as virtual forward as other people have. And it is just, it is tough. It's really tough. So you were starting to talk about large gift fundraising or? So I was just talking about the amplifying the use of Zoom, telephone, and email. I mean, that sounds sort of basic, but I think, you know, it's it's here and we have to figure out how best to use it. The second amplification is is our work really amping up our discovery work, which is finding new major gift prospects. And during COVID, we took the opportunity to consolidate a small group of people sort of sprinkled around the organization and created a, a, a much more intense group of fundraisers into a, um, a seven-person university office focused solely on meeting alumni, ascertaining their interests, and qualifying them. And so far this year has interacted with 1,100 potential prospects. This is twice the number that we normally have with 90 fundraisers. So it's really doubling down on this. They've converted 148 of those people into major gift prospects, and they've raised $4 million along the way. So that's something we're very excited about. When we talk about what we want to sunset, it is the notion that in-person is the best and only way to raise big gifts. Forget sunset. We now have the proof. It's over. It's done. But finally, what do we want to build, which is what are the best practices for when and how to deploy in-person and virtual tools in the giving process? And I don't think we know exactly how that works. We're trying to study that at Cornell and, and get a better read on it. Clearly, the Zoom is has worked, but I think you know, we worry about the pipeline and building relationships. And, and it's one thing, I mean, if you have a long-term relationship with someone, but if, if you never are in person with them, does that work over time? I don't know. So I think it really is, it's what's the best hybrid approach to this. There are going to be some people who only want to meet in person and some people who only want to meet in Zoom. And then I think the, the majority, which is how do you get really savvy about when do you need to be in person? Mm-hmm. So I was talking to a, a, a really senior lawyer and he said, well, there are three times in, in, that we use in our practice, which is building a relationship, triaging a problem or closing. But I think it's sort of interesting. Where, where can you bring the most value? Well, you were just on the road with President Martha Pollack. How did you choose what visits to do in person with her? That's a great question because it was just like pre-pandemic. There was no, we didn't think about, you know, in-person, virtual, Zoom. 
at all. It was just, who do we want Martha to see in Greenwich, Connecticut? So the president still has the sparkle power and maybe always will. Yeah, it's always it's always an asset to have the leader of the organization. Yeah. What what if you're what if someone on your staff asked you what would your advice be to them for their for their portfolio for say a, a let, the, let the donor guide you just okay. reach out to people and let the donor guide you again where are you in the process is it catching up and touching base is it meeting them for the first time is it asking for a gift and we know that we can do all these things by Zoom but where's the special value to being in person so I love the three things you said it was building a relationship, triaging a problem and closing. And I believe body language is really important. I mean, I've I've done a stunning number of gift negotiations where you never see the face, you never see the body language, you just listen to the disembodied voice or, or you see it <laughs> on the Zoom. It's just different. I still know that humans have been in our DNA social creatures forever. I don't think you just switch the. I don't think you just turn the switch off immediately and, yeah. and say we don't need that anymore. So, what would you amplify and sunset and build? I think we need to continue to amplify good ideas and big ideas. I think our institutions need to keep thinking more broadly. In my institution, we're having a lot of conversations about partnerships, which I think really inspires our community. I think we can sunset some of the formality that we've had. In the past, I think that we can be more fluid and flexible with the way we go about the gift conversation with the timing. Like you said, I think a lot of people are ready for the ask earlier than they have been in the past. Alternatively, we've gotten some feedback that we're asking too soon. So it's really individual. So sunsetting the idea that there's a methodical approach, it's always gonna be donor centric. Well, and I like the idea about formality because I think we've learned that the formality, if if you understand the donor and you're very responsive, I think it can go at a different pace. It, right. We spoke just now about large gift fundraising. Let's move on to participation. I learned some really interesting things in this time. You know, building the base of our annual funds and participation donors is essential for all of us. And, and this may be really basic, but I've been around a long time. And what I want to amplify is the insight that we had at Cornell is we can actually ask people for annual gifts more than once a year and they won't be offended. And many will actually give more than they would have otherwise. What we want to sunset is also something that I learned is that ceasing annual fund solicitations broadly during something like the pandemic, which we did in May and June of 2020 was a mistake. And it caused us to lose a lot of donors we're struggling to bring back. Don't know that I would do that again. And then what we want to build is some sort of interesting things we're doing. And this is probably, you know, old news to all of you, but in, in higher ed, it's new. We began soliciting people during event registration and at events themselves. And we're enjoying success attracting gifts. And then finally, we believe that creating more online experiences that lead to giving can help increase participation. So for instance, we have a great history with, with Giving Day. And we're doing more with crowdfunding, for instance, for, for very distinct, clear impact projects for donors who are not so convinced by traditional annual fund and, and operating fund appeals. I've seen the same thing. People love participating in Giving Day. They And one of the ways that actually we've been able to identify exciting new donors is people who gave 
500 or more for giving day in addition to their annual gift. That was a great indicator that we found. And this is even on top of giving day. So we used to just say, really? they'll only ask you once a year that it's, it's unseemly to ask someone to give to the annual fund once a year. And the idea is that you can ask two or three times and they might give two or three times in the year and do giving day. So what are the triggers? Whatever the direct mail bars <laughs> want them to be. And then, so this concept of, we know the world is in duress, so we're gonna stop asking to not upset anyone because things are gonna continue to happen, right? So you're oh. saying if a horrible thing happened tomorrow, you would keep going. Well, an international thing. So I'll give you another example. And we do this and, and you may do this too. Let's just say if there's uh, terrible forest fires in, in the Napa Valley for yeah. an extended period of time, we don't ask people because that's a very generalized, very, very specific thing. And we don't feel comfortable doing that. But just the assumption that because it's a pandemic, and we can't bother people with solicitations. It will upset. Or the market's down. I've or the heard. market's down. And the well, worst thing we can do is not ask because there is still, no matter if the market is down, there is tremendous wealth still being created. People made, people made immense money during the pandemic and people are making immense money now that the market's down. Now, we have to be sensitive about this, but let's not assume that we know. And, and by shutting it down, you know, we so much of our of our best work is recurring donors right and if they if they hadn't made their gifts you know people renewing if they hadn't made their gifts at the end of last year and we didn't ask they didn't do it and then it's it's hard to get people back we work really hard to get people to give and to keep them giving another good one is we've just gone through and we're in the middle of reunion cycles and i know there's been the idea that oh we shouldn't ask at reunion is that still is that sunsetting or is that? Why would you not ask a reunion? Why Why would you not ask? You want them to have a good time and they might not come back if they felt like they were hit up the whole weekend? Well, again, you have to be sensitive, right? And why wouldn't you? They're having a wonderful time. Why wouldn't you? Well, to my point about the annual giving, major giving partnership, I think that we can continue to amplify top level annual giving donors and help them to realize how important they are at the top of the pyramid for reaching our goals. And one of the things we did this year that was just a lot of fun was we asked, I would say about $10,000 plus annual giving donors to add five to $10,000 to their gift as challengers. And people really enjoyed that ask. And a lot of people, right. some people said no, but a lot of people said yes and enjoyed it. So I'd like to amplify more strategy around leadership annual giving. Well, one thing is interesting is in a, particularly in a shop that is as intimate as yours, your annual fund colleagues should be like the canaries in the mine, right? I mean, they've, they, they are, they she is. The, they see the behavior that's important and should be looked at and, and responded to. It's like, someone's telling us something here. The next time we talk, we're going to have to hear how your presentation went, but it's very cool that you're doing this. And hopefully you'll share with your audience that this podcast exists. And the great news is we're going to be doing a few more of these conversations because you mentioned six to seven categories. We just talked about two. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about some other learnings and hopefully people enjoyed hearing from both of us for a hundred. Happy to do it. That's uh, very exciting. And, and uh, I'm always telling people about the podcast. <laughs> Good. Thanks for joining. Take care.
these first 100 episodes of the development debrief these incredible guests these amazing voices are just the beginning i'm launching a website www.devdebrief.com my brother bought me the domain name for christmas and i'm finally putting it to use I'd love to have more audience participation in the future, and that can be done through my website. I'd like to even start doing some live interviews. I think the Development Debrief LLC will continue to grow and take shape as it responds to the needs of our community. When you have a moment like I did in 2018, watching magic take place on stage with Poppy Harlow and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, listen to that feeling and follow it. I'm here to say that it pays off and it feels amazing to be in that flow and that moment of pure inspiration and creativity. So here's to the next 100 and a whole lot more. Thanks so much.